Um, let's open our Bibles together to Matthew. No, you know, open to Romans 2, because I, I wanted to pick up like kind of where I left off. Just another little reminder about that verse in Romans 2. I, I don't think I need to read for you again the parable of the sower itself from, uh, from Matthew chapter 13. But uh, I would like to at least go back and just pick up a little bit of what we were talking about in Romans chapter 2. So let me say a prayer, and then we'll begin to read and to study God's Word. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we are highly privileged, Lord, to have your Word. You've revealed yourself through, like what we call nature, you've revealed yourself through your creation. And anyone can look and detect that you're there. And your word teaches that even your eternal power and Godhead are evident in the things that you've made so, so that men are without excuse. And yet, you've given us the scriptures so we can know so much more details. You've given us the scriptures and even like what we're going to talk about today, Lord God, the, the principle of bearing fruit. I mean, this is something that's so important for us to understand. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word, the Bible, because not only do you reveal your creative works and power, but you also reveal your plan of salvation. Your word is able to make us wise unto salvation. Your word reveals your person, your personality and your character. Your word reveals what angers you and what pleases you. Your word reveals your holiness. Your word reveals your righteousness. Your word reveals your justice. It reveals your grace and your mercy and your compassion. Your word reveals what you expect from those whom you have called and redeemed. Your word reveals what you're yet going to do. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to cherish your word, to listen to it, to read it for ourselves, to listen to it, to believe it, to receive it, to accept it as exactly what it is. And then to be doers of it and not hearers only. Your word is highly exalted. As our Lord Jesus himself prayed before he was crucified, you have magnified your word above all your name. Your word is truth. Help us to treat it as such and receive it as such with the highest respect and with a desire to obey. Grant us the understanding we need. Thank you for the teacher, the Holy Spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go. Romans chapter 2. So, and, and just in case you missed maybe some of the, uh, the studies, the sermons, like kind of leading us up to this part three, um, this is, of course, God bless you. This is, of course, the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower is uh, the, the parable that Jesus used to begin to really unfold the truth of his kingdom. And Jesus said this parable was, in a manner of speaking, he said, um, if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand the rest of them? So there's something of particular importance about the parable of the sower. And uh, when we dig into it, what we see is that the parable of the sower identified chiefly who's in the kingdom and who's not. And if you remember, the important, relevant teaching that distinguished those who are in the kingdom from those who were not, it didn't have to do with maybe some of the typical things that, that you would hear a modern American evangelical Christian talk about, like, well, I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart or 
some description of like church membership or, or, or something like that. The thing that separated one from the other was fruitfulness. The way, the way that, look, look, seed fell on four different grounds, you know that. But the way that you can tell them apart was the fruit that they bore, right? Good fruit was born by the seed that fell on the good soil. Different amounts, but good fruit was produced by those. And no fruit was produced by the rest of the seeds that fell. And we know from the parable that the seed is what? The word of God. The seed is the gospel which is preached. So the gospel gets preached and people respond to it with faith or they respond to it with rejection. The ones who truly respond to it with faith are not the ones that get excited about it. We saw that, right? I mean, some of the people illustrated in the parable received the word of God with gladness and with joy and with eagerness and with readiness. And yet, different things came up that showed that their faith was not real. Trouble and persecution because of the word, and so they left. Or the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choked off the word, so it became unfruitful. And the fact that it was unfruitful was what was revelatory concerning their standing in the kingdom of God, which is what the parable was about. But the ones who went on to bear fruit, and look, some bore 30-fold and some bore 100-fold, some bore 60-fold. Why those differing numbers? To show that, you know, within the context of God's own kingdom, every true child of God is a fruit-bearer. Some will bear lots of fruit. Some will bear maybe only a little bit of fruit, right? Some 30, some 60, some 100. But all will bear fruit. Fruit bearing is not an option. Bearing fruit is not something that a believer chooses to do or doesn't do. Fruit bearing is something that supernaturally happens, must happen in the life of a believer. I don't decide, you know what? I'm going to be fruitful. No, I trust in the Lord and I walk with the Lord. And if I'm truly walking closely with God, with God, I cannot but be fruitful in my life because I'm going to be led by His Spirit. I'm going to be in His Word. I'm going to be communing with Him. I'm going to be in prayer. I'm going to be in consistent fellowship with my brothers and sisters. And through these things, the Holy Spirit's ministry is going to be stirred up in my heart. I'm going to be stirred up by the love of my brethren. I'm going to be stirred up by what the Lord does as I'm communing with Him. And I, I cannot but bear fruit. In the context of my own personal life, I'm still going to battle. I'm still going to struggle. I still might sin and, and need to... Not might. I still will sin and, 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 and need God's grace and, and God to, to, to forgive me and, and everything else but in the court and this is the beauty of the whole thing god through me will still produce fruit right i mean we bear fruit and we like a plant bears fruit but the plant doesn't bear fruit unless it's like planted in the right kind of ground which is the point of the parable of the sower you have a situation where if a person is truly saved there will be fruit in their lives and in romans chapter 2 where I ask you to turn, in uh, verse 5, it said, as we read last week, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up wrath for yourself, wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life, to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because there's no partiality with God. The main point of what Paul is writing there is to show that there's no difference between Jew and Greek when it comes to how, Jew and Gentile, when it comes to how God like judges people, right? Uh, the gospel is the gospel, and it reaches Jew and Greek exactly the same way, even if we're kind of starting from a different standing in the world, before the rest of the world and before God. 
But what he's talking then about here in this passage is how like a, a, a Jewish person might think themselves okay because they're Jewish. I'm not going to read from verse one, but he talks about, you know, you know, you're you're really inexcusable. You know, you think just because you have the scriptures and and you have this religious standing before God, you practice all the same things that the rest of the world does. What makes you think you're going to escape? You're storing up wrath for yourself. And then in this section that started in verse six, he talks about he quotes from the Psalms, he quotes from the Old Testament, imagine that, and says that God's going to render to each one according to his deeds. Wait a minute, I, that's not what they always teach. They always say that works, like, don't matter. And, you know, when it comes to, like, whether or not a person is saved, in a contra- from a standpoint of contribution to where we stand before God, works mean nothing. We know that. That is absolutely true. So then what is it that he's talking about? When he talks about when he quotes from the Psalms and says, God's going to render each one according to his deeds, he means what he says. He doesn't mean some cryptic thing that you have to think about and twist around and make it say something else so it fits in with your predisposed theological understanding. That's not how the Bible works, right? The way the Bible works is you read it and you let it say what it says and you believe it. And so how is it if salvation is not an issue of our works, How is it that Paul can quote from the Old Testament and say that God's going to render each one according to his deeds? And then in case you didn't understand what he meant, he elaborates on it and says, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing, doing, yeah, doing, doing good, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness and unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, Trouble, anguish on every soul who does evil. So in case you didn't get it, he's separating people by doing good and doing evil. You saw that, right? I mean, you look at it in the Bible. I don't want you to just take my word for it. You read it. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about fruit. I mean, the same Paul wrote that by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then the next, the very next verse is, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? So even long before you and I existed, I think, God had charted out our course to serve him through good works. And we are his workmanship now. So the things that we do don't contribute to us being saved, but the things that we do certainly show that we are. This is the concept of what? Fruitfulness. And I read to you that, I'll read it again, that comment from Pastor MacArthur's study Bible, which I just found so helpful just a couple of sentences, the deeds of the redeemed are not the basis of their salvation, but the evidence of it. They are not perfect, or they are, the people are, not perfect and are prone to sin, but there is undeniable evidence of righteousness in their lives. Right? And so you see, that's why Paul writes that. When Paul writes there and says God's going to render each one according to his deeds, it's because the fruit of the truly redeemed life is going to be deeds that change from evil to good. Uh, Listen, Paul didn't write that passage of Scripture there like the law, right? It's not like that passage of Scripture is like part of the law and it's written to just show us that we fall short so we just turn to the Lord. He's writing about Christians there. He's writing about people who are redeemed. And so it's very important that you understand this. So now going back to the parable of the sower then and getting this little insight into the principle, the concept of fruitfulness in the life of a believer. uh, When you consider that the parable of the sower separates people who receive the word of God by those who don't really believe it as evidenced by the lack of fruit in their lives, and those who do really believe it, as evidenced by varying degrees of fruitfulness in their lives. And you read what we just read that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, what should be the logical 
imperative question that everybody wants the answer to. What is... Thank you. I, one person said it. Great. Yes. Very good. You knew that. Yeah, I know you were all thinking it. You know that's what we're talking about. That's what we want to know. What's fruit? What's fruit? I, I mean, fruit. I mean, there's, you, could, you could sit and you can try to think of all sorts of philosophical or pseudo-theological definitions of what it is, or we could just read the Bible and, and, and see what the Bible describes as fruit, because by, the Bible has much to say about the subject, like the passage that we just read in Romans chapter 2. But uh, I think the first thing you ought to do when you describe, try to answer the question, what is fruit? What is fruitfulness? Is maybe turn to Jesus' seminal teaching on the subject, which is John chapter 15. Go to John chapter 15. John 15, 1. Ready? Listen to this. I am the vine. I'm sorry. I am the true vine. That statement itself, the distinction I made by making sure I read it right and including the word true, implies what? Yeah, there we go. Good. If, if Jesus emphasizes that he's the true vine, that implies that there are false vines, right? The true vine is Jesus. I won't elaborate on that for now, but... I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. What does a vine dresser do? Takes care of the vine, makes sure the vine remains pure and right and properly cultivated, and prunes it and receives the fruit from it. The vine dresser is the one who expects the fruit. Now, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. It's interesting that he includes the words in me in that statement, isn't it? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, what does that mean? Uh, what it is talking about is just like in the parable of the sower, there are people who, when they receive the word of God, they receive it with gladness, right? And there might be a sense that they're truly of faith because they were happy and joyful when they first heard the word of God. And even the one where the seed fell among the thorns and they produced no fruit, you know, those are people that may continue to go to church week after week, year after year, may associate with Christians and, and everything else and look, you know, they look like a plant growing in a garden. I mean, they look like it on the outside. But there's no fruitfulness. And so even Jesus, I think, saying here, every branch in me, you know, he's acknowledging the fact that what? Well, in me, there are branches that don't bear fruit. And what does it say? He, who's he? That's the vine dresser. That's the father. He takes away. So, and, and on the other hand, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Why does he prune it? Because he wants to prune the fruit off of it and take care of it and everything else because... It'll bear more. Hey, and so one of the first principles that you have to see here is God is interested, zealous for, and, ready? Actively participates in the fruitfulness of His children. It's not an issue of us. All the, all the branches do is stay connected to the vine. And then they bear fruit. And the father is the one who, you know, false, 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 breaks them off, throws them out. True, bearing fruit, prune, pick the fruit, prune the branch, make sure the branch is ripe. And sometimes, you know, that concept of pruning in the life of a true branch might be painful. Sometimes when a gardener prunes something, they have to trim some things off that you might otherwise not think they need to be trimmed off. Our lives are like that. You know, if we're fruitful believers, listen, God wants us to continue to be fruitful believers and He might work in our lives in the form of discipline. He might work in our lives in the form of chastisement. 
because he loves us and because he's our father and because he's our children. The Bible says we're not truly his children if that sort of discipline is not in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12. But every true branch, every real branch that actually bears fruit, the father prunes because he wants to bear more fruit. Some of you who are maybe older time Christians and are familiar with the ministry of uh, J. Vernon McGee. I know some of you listen to the Through the Bible radio. I think, Ron, you have the app on your phone or something like that, right? But, and, and I, you know, I came up in the Lord listening to him. His probably most famous sermon was called Fruit, More Fruit, and Much Fruit. And that's, that's where this comes from. He speaks of the, uh, the true branches bearing fruit and then being pruned so they can produce more fruit. And then later in the passage, down in verse 5, he says, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Right? And so that's where all this comes from. God is zealous to receive the fruitfulness that every farmer and gardener is looking for. And so he actively participates in it. Right? You are already clean, it says in verse 3, because of the word which I have spoken to you. Right? What makes the branch clean and ripe and ready? Ripe's not the right word. I don't know much about gardening. But, but you see the, what makes the branch clean and uh, unmolested by uh, disease and things like this? The word which is spoken. What is it which makes us clean? What is it which makes us even able to bear fruit to begin with? The word of the gospel, which the Lord delivers. So when you receive the word... You know, maybe it's one of those kids across the world who opens up that shoebox and reads a gospel literature, a piece of literature, or hears something from someone, and they receive Christ by faith, or you or I, we receive the gospel. At that moment, man, we are clean because of the word which is spoken in us. We have been saved, we have been set apart, and we're ready. We are as ready as you can be to bear fruit with our lives at that moment when we believe. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Then he says... You ready? Now, here's what you're supposed to do. Because that's what... What is fruit bearing? Fruit is itself the things in our lives. We'll go over some of this in a minute. Fruit is the things that our lives produce because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do I do? Bad to the bone. Isn't that what that is? I was going to say... It's a, what do I do? Someone's calling because they want to know what what, what they ought to do. (laughs) Verse 4. Abide in me. That's what we're called to do. We're not just called to go out and fill our lives with a bunch of activity. The fruitfulness, listen, and this is where you have to be very discerning. Because we're not doing works for the purpose of trying to justify ourselves before the Lord. We don't hear a preaching or teaching about fruitfulness and just decide, okay, I need to get busier in my life. That's not the correct response. Here's the correct response. Three words. Abide in me. That's where fruitfulness comes from. Now, abide is a continuous present. Do you know what I mean? Like, abide is something you do in the present tense, but you do it all the time continually. To abide means to live somewhere, to be somewhere, to stay somewhere. Right? That's what we're called to do. We're called to abide in the vine. If we're a true branch, we're called to abide in the true true vine. What does that play out to in your Christian life? Here's what you're called to do. Once you've been saved, once He has made you clean because of the gospel, you begin in that moment walking day by day, moment by moment, closely with the Lord. And you never outgrow that. And listen, the, the, above all, the thing that the devil, Satan, who is alive and active and walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Don't you kid yourself. The number one thing that Satan tries to do when somebody believes, because he's lost some ground when somebody believes, right? The number one thing is he tries to cut this off, this abiding in the vine. Get the people out of the Word. Get them to shut their Bibles. Get them out of church. Get them to stop being in fellowship 
Get them, get them out of a place where they're hearing good preaching. Get them out of a place where they're worshiping God together. Get them out of a place where they can love one another and serve the Lord together. Get them out. Stop them from praying. Show them they don't need it every day. Show them there are all sorts of alternatives to it that are just as good. That's the number one thing that he does. Because Satan knows that the fruitfulness of a child of God comes from his abiding in the vine. It comes from his close personal walk with the Lord. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. See? That's why you don't hear a passage about fruitfulness and just decide, well, I need to get busy. Right? Because you can't do anything by yourself. If you're not fruitful, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to repent. Right? And you need to turn to the Lord. And you need to, like, examine yourself. And you need to examine your life. Right? Listen, God would like to do some pruning if you're truly His. You need to examine your life. Maybe there are some things that don't belong there. Maybe you're not reading the Word. Maybe you're not committed to His body, the church. Maybe you're not spending the time praying by yourself or with others or whatever. Right? Maybe you've got like this stubborn, rebellious streak in you that just causes you to want to be out on your own and no one's going to tell you to do anything. Whatever the case may be, you just don't want to be told anything. You don't want to hear God's word. Maybe you just love the things of this life more. Maybe you think you've just got it figured out. Maybe your plan for what Christianity is, you think is better than God's in the Bible. Maybe you think all of this church, the Bible, prayer, and all these things are just old and worn out and passe, like the rest of the world does, which is speeding towards its accountability and its judgment for it. Listen to me. Listen to me. You need to get those attitudes out of your life and you need to return to the Word. If you examine yourself and you see your life is not fruitful, now look, there might be, there is some truth to the fact that like, maybe you are walking closely with the Lord, but you're just being a little lazy about it and, and you need to like get a little busier than you are. Like, that, that might be true, right? That might be true. But that's not really what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today is if you examine yourself and you see that you're not fruitful, then spiritually something is wrong. Because branches that abide in the vine do bear fruit. Right? And those who are truly saved and are in the kingdom of God, the good soil hearers of his word, they do bear fruit. So you examine yourself and if you find your fruitfulness wanting, then what you need to do is humble yourself and repent and turn to the Lord. Get back where you need to be. Listen, God is so gracious. You know, we read sometimes like we're studying Amos on Thursday nights and we're studying about how the Lord was bringing judgment to Israel. But do you know like centuries, I mean decade after decade after decade after decade went by where God sent them prophets. He was so patient with them where he sent them prophets, and he even sent them judgments. He even sent harmful things into the land to try to get their attention. God was so patient. Listen, if you're here today and you find yourself like wanting in this, lacking in this in your life, don't give up. Don't give up. Turn to the Lord. He is. If you're here today, that's evidence enough to me that if you humble yourself and turn to the Lord, you can get right to where you need to be with him. You think, well, I used to abide with the Lord, but I've drifted away, and I don't know if God is tired of me, God's done with me, etc. So we get ourselves worn down, beaten down by like thinking like that, and it's false. You know, when God's done with you, He'll take out of here, right? You're here. So better, respond to His word. Listen, I'm not fruitful. Listen, get back close, pressed into the vine where you belong. Get into His Word. Get into fellowship. Purge your life a little bit. Look at your life a little bit. I mean, if you've got stuff going on and the life that you're living is so intense with activity that there's no time, there's no energy, there's no nothing, no anything left over for you to give in facilitating your own spiritual growth, 
praying, studying God's Word, being in the fellowship of the church. Listen, make those things right. Abide in the vine. Turn back to Jesus. You're here. He's gracious. Guess what? If you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Look, your sins, He bore them when He died on the cross. And when you were redeemed, that was permanent. You were sealed with God's Holy Spirit and that's done. So that verse, when it says to confess your sins, is not about getting saved. That's about the ongoing day-by-day walk with the Lord. And if you feel like you're not fruitful, maybe your, your, your closeness with the Lord Jesus, which is where the fruitfulness comes from, has been assailed and, and you've been deceived and, and you know, you're listening to bad stuff and you've got some bad practices, you keep bad company, and all of that stuff corrupts and affects your life. Change those things. Confess your sins to the Lord. Receive His cleansing. Get back right with God. Get into His Word. Start today. Start in the beginning if you have to. Go back to the beginning if you need to. Get on, the, get on your knees before the Lord and just pray and say, Lord, I don't know how I drifted away, but I said, Thank you for opening my eyes through the preaching of your word. And I just want to start back in today, walking with you, closely with you. Go to Genesis 1-1 if you have to. And just start reading. And get in the word. And get into prayer. And just devote yourself to the life of your church. And, and, and get back close. Get that connection between branch and vine back. Because that's where the fruitfulness comes from. Not from my own talent not from my own diligence, not from my own busyness. It, real fruit comes from my close, intimate relationship with my Savior. Get that back. Abide in me and I in you. Look at, what, a great, what a great little statement. Read it. It goes by so fast. Abide in me and I in you. And there's a period at the end of it. So that's like the whole sentence. Abide in me and I in you. And we just read that. And it's like it takes a... Can we stop and think about that? Jesus says it in the form of a command. Abide in me. And I in you. Right? Is that what it says? Yeah, it does. So, in other words, one is a command and the other one is like a promise from him. He calls you to abide in Him and says He will in you. James put it like this. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's where fruitfulness comes from. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. Simple. I'm the vine and you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him might bear some fruit. No, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. See, it's twofold. It's twofold. Number one, you can't bear any fruit without a close personal walk with the Lord Jesus. And you can't not bear fruit if you are walking closely with the Lord Jesus. Have we made the point clear enough? Have we made the point clear enough? If you examine your life and it's not fruitful, the remedy is Jesus. The remedy is to turn back to Him. If you're not fruitful in your life, then if I understand it right, I would say there's something amiss about your relationship with God. Examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith, period. Make sure you've humbled yourself, you repent, you trust with all of your heart that the Lord Jesus is the Son of God and He died for your sins and He rose from the dead. And you believe and you trust in Him. As many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the children of God to those who believe in His name. Make sure you're in to begin with. And examine your own relationship with Him. Do you walk with Him closely? Are you actively, continually, that active, continuous, present, abide? Are you actively, continually abiding in Him? Or, or you, do you just live however you want? And you've got a couple hours every week that you set aside for church or, or, or God and religious stuff, whatever. That's not abiding in the vine. Right? 
You know, you know the, the branches don't break off, and then when I decide I want an apple, I go stick the branch back on the tree for a day or two, and apple comes out, and then I just take it off again. That's not how it works. It remains attached and goes through a life of pruning. Humble yourself before the Lord. Turn to Him. Let Him prune. Abide in Him. Let Him bring forth fruit through you. Now, that's kind of the foundational teaching about what fruit is. It is the result. It is the results in your life of your close personal walk with God through faith in Jesus Christ, His Son. That's what fruit is. Now, are there some examples of it in the Bible? Turn to Luke chapter 3. I just want to go through a few things with you here. Three weeks on the parable of the sower. Wow. I hope it's not just because I'm verbose. I hope we're really, you're all really receiving things. And I mean, it's helping me to like kind of go through this slow. Luke chapter 3 and verse 7. So John the Baptist, this is, says to the multitude, let's just say, we're just going to read a few verses that kind of deal with this concept of fruitfulness to get some examples in our lives, okay? John the Baptist says to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, welcome, my friends. No, you bunch of snakes. That's a good warm greeting. We'll try that one day. When we start our service in the morning. Good morning, you bunch of snakes. Let's sing together and then we'll pray. No, I won't do that. I promise I won't do that. A little levity. Um, You bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. So here's kind of one of the starting points for understanding what fruit is. There is fruit of repentance. And Luke in his gospel gives a little more information than Matthew does and describes it. He says, first he says what fruit is not, right? Don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Your religion is not fruit. Anyone can be religious. We're the children of Abraham. Congratulations. What did you do to be a child of Abraham? You did nothing, right? That's how much it's worth. All right? The children of Abraham were in a blessed spot because of God's covenant and because God blessed the world through Abraham's descendant, the Messiah. To them were given the oracles of God, so there were advantages for sure. But don't think to say, well, we have Abraham as our father. No, 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 no. I say to you, what? See the rocks? God can make children of Abraham out of the rocks. Enough of that. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow! Even John the Baptist, before Jesus was revealed publicly and said a word to anybody, even John the Baptist was talking about fruitfulness as being the real evidence of someone who is right before God. And what was the ministry of John the Baptist? John the Baptist was to prepare the way for Christ to come. And A.W. Pink, an old preacher and theologian, put it this way. He said, just like uh, John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord Jesus to come, so the ministry and message of John the Baptist prepared the people for the ministry and message of Jesus. And what was the heart of the ministry and the preaching of John the Baptist? It was repentance. It was to call the people to repentance. And A.W. Pink's point was, the way John the Baptist prepared people for Jesus is the way that repentance prepares people for faith. Repentance. Jesus, as the Gospel of Mark records, said, first thing he said, recorded in the Gospel of Mark, the kingdom of heaven is here, near. Repent and believe the Gospel. Right? And so repent. So John the Baptist here says, bring forth fruit of repentance. So the people asked him in verse 10, what shall we do? He answered and said to them, well, you can't do anything. Oh, no, that's not what he said. No, no, no. Do you appreciate my irony when I do that? 
I'm, do, I'm, do, I'm doing that on purpose because those are the ways that people would answer those questions today. If someone said, what is repentance? What should I do? We would say, oh, well, no, you don't do anything. It's funny that John the Baptist doesn't answer the question that way. He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. And then some tax collectors and said, what should we do? And he said, collect no more than what is appointed for you. The soldiers, what should we do? And he said to them, don't intimidate anyone or accuse people falsely and be content with your wages. What is repentance? Repentance is a fruit. He said, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. So repentance is something that produces in the life a change. That's all, right? It's not works. You know, people make it out to be works and so they fight against it. I don't know why you fight against things that are clearly preached in God's word. Repentance is, we, like in the examples Jesus gave, was like you're just living totally, for, or not Jesus, John the Baptist. You're just living totally for yourself. A repentant heart would recognize there are people with no coats and you have two, right? A repentant heart would not cheat people out of their money and deceive them like a, like a, like a scheming tax collector would do. A, a, a repentant heart would not use their position and their authority and their weapons to intimidate other people like a corrupt soldier might do. So a repentant heart is show, shows up in the life of a person. John the Baptist said, bring fruits worthy of repentance. That's number one. Number two, turn to Galatians chapter five. You knew we were going to go to Galatians chapter five at some point. Galatians chapter five. Now, in verse 22 is described the fruit of the spirit. But I want you to note something that I'm sure at some point along the way I've pointed out before, and maybe you've heard me say it, but, but uh, if you haven't, notice that verse 22 starts with what word? But. So when you see the word but, you don't want to just run into the sentence because but indicates that a contrast is being drawn. Right? Go back to verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Listen, bottom line, when you walk closely with the Lord, that is a talisman against, against sinning. We all fall short. We're all going to stumble and we're going to fall. But man, I'm telling you, you're worn out by the temptation and the sin in your own life. Stop walking in the flesh and walk in the Spirit. Get into God's Word. Get into prayer. Devote yourself wholly to the Lord. Cry out for His Spirit to work in your heart. Walk in the Spirit. That means live your life in the Spirit. And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because look at this. There's a war going on. There's a war going on inside of each Christian. The flesh, which is the temporal vessel that you occupy lusts against the spirit which is the real you and the holy spirit who has come into you to make you alive so the the real you who you are your spirit the inner man as the bible calls it elsewhere has been made alive as ephesians says by the holy spirit but you still occupy this temporal Doomed for destruction, return to the dust of the earth, flesh, body, right? And there's a war going on because, you know, you had from the time you were born all the way up to the time you got saved to train yourself to cater to the lust of your flesh. And then you got saved and everything changed. And so there's this war going on. And the flesh wars against the spirit. The flesh lusts against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. And they're contrary to one another so that you don't do the things that you wish. Or as he said in Romans famously, right? I don't do the things that I want to do. I do do the things that I don't want to. Because there's this war going on, right? But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Isn't that great? See, when we walk according to the flesh, and in the book of Galatians, which is all about the law, Verse being justified by the Spirit versus justified by the law. The person that tries to walk by the law is going to find in his own strength what? 
He can't keep it. Right? The law condemns, condemns, condemns. But now we're under something entirely different. His Holy Spirit is in us. And so we're not just trying to avoid the things the law says to avoid and do things the law says to do. We've already proven with our lives we can't do that. But with His Spirit in us, if we walk in the Spirit, what we will find is that we don't fulfill those things that are contrary to what pleases the Lord. That's the key to walk. It's just like what Jesus said, abide in me. This is spiritual stuff. You've got to walk closely with the Lord. You've got to walk by faith and not by sight. You've got to walk by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. This is how the Christian must live if we're going to what? Bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Right? Now, verse 19. See, we're getting to verse 22 here. Now the works of the flesh are evident, they're obvious, which are adultery. These are, these are all sins that are like violations of God's holy commands. They're works of the flesh. When we walk in the flesh, this is what we're good at. Here's what the natural man is good at. Stop and consider the world. Stop and consider the culture that we're part of. Stop and think about all the stuff on the television, on the computer, on the internet, and all this stuff. Stop and think about it. The list that I'm about to read, I submit to you, is what this world is good at. Ready? Here's what our world is good at. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, which is like a word for like sexual corruption, idolatry, sorcery, which is, sounds weird. I don't, I don't think it means witchcraft as much as it means basically just getting yourself high, right? Sorcery, the idea is, you've heard this before, pharmakia is the Greek word, which is where you get the word pharmacy. And the idea is what the world is good at is like altering its mind, you know, drugs, alcohol, just drunkenness. This is what the world is good at. Hatred, yeah, the world's really good at that. Contentions, the world is expert at that. It's created all sorts of new, new tools where we can fight with each other 24-7 if we want. The world's great at this. Jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I had told you in time past, that those who what? Practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who walk in those things... And Jesus' parable, the parable of the sower, is about the kingdom of God. It's about who's in and who's not. And here's the Apostle Paul saying, the people who practice these things are not in the kingdom of God. Right? But, now you get to the but in verse 22. On the other hand, here's what the fruit of the Spirit is, right? Notice that the works of the flesh, in verse 19, are contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Like, the works of the flesh. Those are the things that we do naturally in the world that the world is good at. But notice it does not say the works of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit. Because these are the things that are produced in our lives when we walk in the Spirit, as it says in verse 16. When we walk closely with the Lord, what is produced? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. What a... What a different list. Here's the things that the world is lousy at. But if we walk closely with the Lord, these things will manifest. They will be evidence in our lives of the presence of real saving faith. Some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. You as ears, let them hear. Right? See how this all works? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, for those of you that love law, I mean, Paul's addressing law versus grace. There's no law against any of that. You just, if you walk closely with the Lord... You're not striving to keep commands. If you walk closely with the Lord, the natural, the supernatural product of that relationship with God is these things. And listen, 
You're not violating any law. What law are you breaking if you love your brother? You know? If you have joy in your life because of whatever, you know, not joy in just like fleshly pleasure, but you have joy in your life because you recognize God's been good to you because of your relationship with God, you're long-suffering, you know, you're patient with other people. These are the things that are 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold manifest in the lives of good soil recipients of the seed of God's Word, the fruit of the Spirit. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live in the Spirit, look at this, let us also walk in the Spirit. Um, The idea there is... If we live in the Spirit, the idea of living is like abiding. It's the state of being alive. So in other words, if you're alive in God's Holy Spirit, let us also what? Walk in the Spirit. What's that? That's the activity of a person who's alive, right? If you're alive, you walk. That's pretty easy to understand, right? If you're dead, you don't. If you're alive, you walk. So if you're alive in the Spirit, then walk in the Spirit. Because if you walk in the Spirit, you know what you're not going to do? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, and on and on and on and on and on. Instead, but instead, if you walk in His Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in your life is going to be these characteristics, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, etc. Crucify the flesh, walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, is how the passage finishes. So, one of the fruits that he talks about is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is that which your, those, those characteristics, those, those things that your life produces simply because you walk in the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, etc. What else? Turn to, I made reference to this passage before. Turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. I talked before about God's discipline. Let me, let, me, let me show you something else about that. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I think we'll start in verse 5. You might as well just start in verse 1. Hebrews 12.1. It's on the tail end of how he described all these people of great faith. And says, we also... So he he includes his readers in with the list of people that he mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 by saying, we also. How, How like, you know... Humbling a a thought is that. You can read Hebrews 11 for yourself. We also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's all the, the people who went before us in the faith, let us what? Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Lay it aside. Lay it aside. Drop it. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's right. The Christian life is an endurance race, not a sprint. Looking unto Jesus, right? In other words, it's not just we get saved and that's it. Moment by moment, you're running, you're running, you're running. Every step, you're looking at who? Jesus, always. The author and finisher of our faith, right? The one who started it and the one who's going to bring you to completion. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He suffered. Jesus suffered like no one has suffered, but look where he ended up, at the right hand of his Father. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. See, it's an an endurance race. And along the way, as I said before, what's going to happen? Satan is going to use various circumstances, even various people, 
various things that get said or done in your life to try to discourage you and distract you and to stop you from walking with God. That is the manifest work of the devil, alive and active in the lives of Christians. To stop them from walking closely with the Lord. For consider him who endured such hostility against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. In those moments when you know Satan is attacking, the Bible says what? Resist him and he'll flee from you. Right? We have to be sober and vigilant and watch, and then we have to resist him. Resist him. Kick him out. And think about what? Think about what Jesus went through. That's the point of verse 3. Lest you become weary and discouraged, you remember that, listen, Jesus, you ready? You want to hear how hard it can get? Jesus fasted for 40 days. He didn't eat anything for 40 days. And then Satan was right there saying what? Look at the rock right there. Mm, Turn it into bread if you're the son of God. That's how hard it gets. I mean, hey, turn the rock into bread would be pretty tempting for me right now. And I last ate just last night. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. And there's Satan. Turn the rock into bread if you're the son of God. Jesus, man doesn't live on bread alone. But But that's how hard it gets. That's how hard. Listen, next time the discouragement comes... Because you, first, you remember two things. When you're, when you're, when you're trying to walk closely, this is going to part four. You know that, right? Are you okay with that? I really am sensitive about that. I don't, I don't want to, I, I have no plans to be here in like the year 2035, still going through the gospel of Matthew. I have no such plans. I got to say these things. I mean, I, I get you for like an hour every Sunday, and, and, and some of you, that's the only time I ever see you or ever talk to you. So this is it, you know? The next time, you know, you recognize that Satan is doing this in your life, you recognize a few things. Number one, when you, when you, when you, when you find it hard, to pray or to study the word or to be in church or if there are forces people saying things to you people doing things to make you feel discouraged and you you feel like this is just making it really hard for you to be walking closely with the Lord you remember a few things first of all you remember that is satan we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, etc., and so forth, Ephesians chapter 6. You recognize that Satan is alive and well, walking around like the roaring lion, seeking whom he made us. That's number one. You recognize it's Satan. Number two, you resist it, as Jesus did. Jesus himself gave the example, you know. I mean, Peter, after Jesus said he was going to die... And rise again. Peter said, no way. Even if everyone else forsakes you, I'm not going to. No way, no. And and Jesus says, what? Get behind me, Satan. Because as, as Peter, I mean, Peter, it actually says, it uses the word rebuke. The scripture actually says, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him when he said he was going to like, you know, die. And Jesus said to Peter, who, by the way, just moments earlier had said, you're the Christ. The son of the living God. And Jesus commended that that had been given to him by the Lord. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So you remember when that discouragement comes, where that's coming from. It's coming from the devil. And you rebuke him. And you tell him like Jesus did, get behind me. Which is a really nice way of saying, get lost. Scram. Shoo. In Jesus' name. Things that get said and done to discourage Christians from walking closely with God are from Satan. One 
100%. Two, in addition to remember that, you remember that the Lord himself endured worse. Right? A couple examples I just gave you. But what does the word say here? He endured hostility from sinners against himself. So you remember that. You remember Jesus himself went through it. You remember that Satan is the author of it. You rebuke Satan and you go to the Lord and you grab and you hold on tight for the rest of your life. Day by day, moment by moment, abide in the vine. Verse 4, hey, what did Jesus do? He was flogged and he was crucified. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. Right? I mean, we think it gets hard. You remember Jesus gave his body. Suffered. And you've forgotten, this is the point, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. What does that mean? What that means is sometimes, not all the time maybe, but sometimes the difficult things that come into our lives are discipline from God. That's not a bad thing. Look at verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. God wants us to grow. God, as Jesus said, prunes the vine, prunes the branches. Sometimes, when we're not walking the way we should, God chastens us like you parents do your children. Because he's a good father. The good father that loves his child disciplines his child because he loves his child. His child may respond to that this way or that way, especially as they get older. As father of teenagers, I can say that. But the good father disciplines his children. God, our Father, disciplines us. And it says in verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which we have all become partakers, then you're illegitimate and you're not sons. If God doesn't, if this chastening is not going on in your life, then you're either A, perfect, or B, God's not your father. And I know you're not perfect. Right? Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. I don't have time to dwell on that statement. I want to go on. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, ready? Afterward, it yields what? The peaceable fruit of righteousness. See here. This is part of the fruitfulness of a believer's life is that they receive chastening from the Lord that they might grow and the growth is evidenced by what? Righteousness. What is righteousness? It's a very long word that simply means what is right. That is to say, one of the fruits of a truly faithful person One of those fruits that good soil will produce from a seed, 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold, is righteousness in conduct and living. And there is pain we go through sometimes to learn that and to get there. But it's the pain of the discipline of a loving father. But that is one of the fruits of someone who truly believes. You show me someone who says, I believe, but there's no righteousness at all in their lives. Have you not read what Jesus said when he said that those will come to him in the last day and they'll proclaim to him, Lord, Lord, and he'll say to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How can we read that and not realize that 
a growth in practical righteousness is one of the evidences that you're God's child. This passage in Hebrews says, if you don't have God disciplining your conduct in your life, He's not even your father to begin with. And we patiently endure that chastening that comes because He wants us to grow. And if, if we patiently endure that, we will go on to produce the peaceable, peaceable, it's good, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Right? That's one of the fruits of someone who truly believes they have a loving father's discipline teaching them to live right. There is a very, you might be surprised to hear this, there's a very large segment of evangelical Christianity in America that hates this thought because they think we're promoting being saved by works. How can anyone listen to what I'm saying today and think that's what I'm saying? I'm simply reading to you the Bible. I, I, I don't know. If, I know I'm verbose and I say a lot of words, but a pretty big chunk of the minutes that I stand in front of you are simply with my face buried in the book. Right? You know that. Over 16 years I've been doing this. Listen. That's one of the fruits of a life. What did we see? There's more. Part four coming next week. But look, so far we've talked about the, 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 the seminal teaching, which is the vine and the branches. We talked about fruits worthy of repentance from John the Baptist. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians. Here we've talked about the peaceable fruit of righteous conduct from Hebrews. There's more to say. There's the fruit of service to God. There's the fruit of works. There's the fruit of evangelism. There are different things that are supernaturally, other things too, that are supernaturally the product. And you need to know this. You need to know this because Jesus taught in the parable of the sower that the difference between those who are in and those who are out is the fruit. Stand up with me. We're done for today. Before I pray, may I please say that very quickly after we end here, we'd like to get our annual business meeting started up here. And so those who are members of the church, we very much need for you to be here, uh, to establish quorum, and then discuss what we need to discuss and vote. Anyone who is like regularly, actively here as part of the life of our church is certainly welcome to sit and listen, but, but voting is only for those who have actually become members of the church, right? So uh, if you're staying, I'll see you in about five minutes. If you're leaving, God bless you. Thank you for being here. Sign up for the dinner today. That'd be a great thing to do on the way out the door. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is clear. Your word teaches us as we ought, what we ought to know and what we ought to learn. Lord, I think like the foundational, most important thing that comes out of the word today is that we can't do anything if we're not abiding in you. And so I pray, Lord God, if there's anyone here today who hasn't truly been saved through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that they would repent and believe the gospel today that you have made the only way of salvation. You died for our sins. You rose from the dead. And through faith in you, there is salvation. And for those of us who are saved, I pray, Lord, we would all just recommit ourselves to abiding day by day, continually in your word, in prayer, in fellowship, and devote ourselves to what we ought because the fruit we produce is what comes out of our relationship with you, not just what we choose to do on ourselves. We can't do anything. It's the result of walking closely with you. Let it be so, please, in your children, Lord God. Thank you for this day here today. In Jesus' name, amen.